Here's a report, another one, another report. Tells us what we already know. Good intelligence is great when you actually do something about it. pleasure to have a conversation with friends and today I have one of those really good individuals with me on podcast. He's a, a seasoned, purpose-driven senior lawyer and compliance professional. He's actually a group director. Well, you know, Kevin, he likes to downplay himself. You know, well, that's, that's who he is. An investor, he sits on boards, arms, um, a DNA advocate. He's a husband. He's a father of and the founder of Diversity X, which we're definitely never talking about. I know he doesn't like talking about himself too much. He always likes to shine a limelight with other people. But today we're going to get to listen to the journey, the experiences of the one and only Kevin Bertain. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me on here. I left you on a therapy couch and then you're paying for it, right? <laughs> and even then you don't want to. times when you see like great founders in particular doing stuff and your journey your story really inspires the people that's why like it's good to be able to like celebrate and just to hear some of those ups downs the good the bad and even how you're navigating because you're someone who does a lot and you're doing that while still being a family man and while still striving for so much more in the future so it's People could see how you're kind of handling and maintaining that. But before we delve forward, let's, let's pick it back a bit. Because you actually grew up, like I said, we grew up in the same same ends. I went to school in, in Enfield. You're from the Enfield side of things. So what was teenage, like, teenage years like for you? Good, I'd say. I mean, I'm fortunate. I had a good set of friends. That my closest friends from back in the day when I was at school are still the closest friends now like been through university, working, lived around the world. But like the people I know that if I needed help immediately, I could tap into any of them. They're still the friends today. So in that sense, it was good, but it was tough. Like uh, lived in a nice house, but my dad was working hard for mostly <laughs> and then paying for the rest of him credit cards. You know, parents divorced, dad got remarried. And divorced again. <laughs> and there was a point where we were living in, me and my brother were living in a room with a, in our own house <laughs> with a microwave in there because our, um, our first our stepmom wasn't, wasn't particularly very nice or caring. Then my, I call her my mum, and she is, but she's my stepmom. She was brought over to care for us when we were young and seen her almost getting on the plane deported. And then, I don't know what happened, but something amazing happened and they stopped her on the steps of the plane, pulled her back and long, hard wow. years followed of ensuring that she got to the right to remain here. They're quite happy to take her tax money though, up until that point. <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah. yeah. So living through that was pretty difficult and trying to obviously 
I mean, from a, my dad's from Sri Lanka, so South Asian family, get the good grades done. Constantly, constantly, like it's all about trying to get good grades, trying to get good grades, trying to impress you, trying to make your dad or parents proud and your family proud. So a lot of pressure whilst all this background stuff's going on <laughs> that you don't talk about apart from to your closest friends. So yeah, it was, it was interesting, but I look back in fond memories, you know, playing football in town park, getting Mackie D's when we're allowed as fifth form and then trying to sell it onto the younger kids and makes them look more tangled. So I had school, my dad would give me money for the school dinners. I'd save it all up so that I can go get the bus one to one down to Enfield locked because there was a shop there that sold computer games. And I had the BBC. Do you remember where you put the tape in? And you go, like that. So I could go and buy new games. And then the school complained. They're like, we don't see your son eating. So dad's like, hey, you, how's lunches? How's the school lunches? I was like, it's great. He's like, you're lying to me. So how do you know? He's like, because the school told me you're never in lunch. So what are you doing? And then <laughs> they see like, stack of tapes of computer games <laughs> that was a lesson in that you never pull your, anything out of your, your parents eyes I remember, I remember it was it was days and it sounds like from day dirt you've had like a entrepreneurial spirit birth inside of you to hustle and, and make things work in the way that you wanted them to yeah I, I guess it's only now that I'm, I'm particularly interested in entrepreneurs and founders journeys and and how they that I actually look at back at my own because I never really thought of it that way but I think it's like I was saying with you before but probably consider my brother as the entrepreneurial one but looking back now I think some of the entre- earliest memories were like hustling we did a <laughs> we moved in kids my two cousins were coming right over they're similar ages as well to me and my brother I can't remember how old we were. It must have been between the ages of seven and ten, probably. And <laughs> just we started getting bottles of shampoo and conditioner, mixing them together into our own thing, putting a label on it, dressing up in my dad's suits, which must have looked ridiculous in hindsight. <laughs> These overgrown suits yeah. on little kids. All four of us would walk home with like a little bottle and we'll take it. We walked like 10 minutes away to like the hairdressers on the high street or near where we lived in Oakwood and go, would you like to buy it? This is the best product you're going to buy. And they, they took some for like 50p each. And then we went back again, tried it again. They're like, no, <laughs> we were just playing with you there. But I guess that's probably my earliest memory of trying to start something, then getting school, secondary school. And it's like, you know, my dad worked at Macros. Do you remember Macro's down in like Enfield Lock or Brimsdown? And he was security. So they would be chucking out, like if they had a break in and stuff and things were damaged, like they used Macro's souls, like for anybody in America will know those Costco is yeah, it's like yeah. a sort of Costco wholesalers. Rather than bring home loads of sweets because they're going to be chucking it out because the, the whole seal was being damaged or whatever. So I'll take those and I was like, I can make money out of this. <laughs> but you know, they're only penny sweets. I could sell them for like, we still had in those days, like half pennies at the time. When I started secondary school, we still had the half penny in the early, like late 80s. Still had that. Well, I could sell it for a penny, right? Because the kids can't go out of school. Like we're like, you couldn't leave the school premises until your fifth year. So first three years, first four years, really, I had like a market. There was a rival, but he had to pay for his products. I was like, 
making margin on this all the time. So I'd undercut him on his prices and we'll have a little war over. So in Penny Suites, so <laughs> I guess my second entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial venture was uh, that. And then it was like getting paper rounds. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, to this day, the wealthiest I've ever felt was doing paper rounds. I used to have like three or four different paper rounds. It was so heavy. Like I used to do like the local newspapers. They pay nothing. Mum used to help me. We used to have this garage just stacked of newspapers, the Enfield Independent or the Enfield Advertiser. You have to deliver it around. My mum used to help me at times. I'll be honest, I did cheat a couple of times and shoved some newspapers in bushes. I was like, this is free. They're, never, they're not paying for it anyway, so we're not going to complain. But I did do that until I got caught by my mum and I stopped. <laughs> but the wealthiest I ever found was actually doing paper rounds. That was a time I actually felt like I'm free and I've got money. That was a good life. Yeah, that was a good life. And the tips were wonderful. You used to get tips. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did it around Oakwood and Southgate. So, you know, they were big houses. And I always did it with a smile because I wanted the tips. Yeah, like five, tenner. That was nice. Christmas tips. Christmas tips was like amazing. Yeah. I liked it. <laughs> it was good. And then I even got promoted to work inside the shop at one point, McCall's. So, yeah, it was good. But they were the earliest days. And actually, thinking back, it's probably continued to then start a law degree. I was, um, I guess, privileged. My parents weren't wealthy enough. So my first year, like they did grants back then. So, like, so you didn't have to get student loans, but it barely covered anything. And it's, but it's significantly better than it is today, where you have to pretty much pay for everything and get into a hock of debt. But, you know, my parents weren't wealthy. So whilst we got that and then the second year got taken away, it's like, oh, your dad's over the threshold marginally. But that means you no longer get a grant. You're no longer eligible for a grant. You have to get student loans. I can tell you it was tough. So I was like, well, you know what? I'm learning law. What can I do? I could take notes. So I created my CV and just walked around every holiday. I'd walk around the streets of London and just stopping into every local law firm, just saying, I can do something. And then they said, oh, actually, one... One started going, oh, yeah, why don't you take notes for us on family cases? I was like, okay, I could do this. So I did it. It was pretty easy. And I was like, do you know what? I wonder if other law firms need that. So that's what I'm going to offer. I'm going to offer clerking services. So I started doing it. And in the end, I had like, like a few other students. And I did it all the way through, like continued doing it through like university and then through bar school. of like just basically running this clerking service company hire other students and giving them a little bit, but saying, but you're getting work experience, so which you wouldn't get anywhere else. And you're going in doing real cases. And they basically go in for the law firm, take notes, send it back to me. I send it back to the law firm. So there was never the connectivity that I could steal my business. Yeah. Help give you that extra little bit of money that I needed to, to survive and get through being a like law school, which is expensive and really for the privileged. Well, seeing the experience that your mum had when she almost got deported at a young age, was that what inspired you to go into law? No, it didn't. It wasn't that. It was actually the experience that made me want to do not do family or not do like that type of law because it's a heartbreaking. I can't do that in all honesty. Like, yeah, I said, obviously my, my parents divorced. Well, it's super tough. I know I can't do that because I'm quite an emotional person and it will break me 
<laughs> and you know, people just need level-headed. This is a job. We're going to help you type of people. And I'd get too emotional about it. LA Law made me want to do law. Next, <laughs> sneaking downstairs to, to watch it while my parents were watching it. It looked glamorous. It looked cool. Um, I guess people say use suits now as the example. Because I'm not the first lawyer I've spoken to who's mentioned at LA Law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there is that also reading books about Rumpole of the Bailey. And I mean, I think back to it, and he's not exactly the most PC of people, but he is a humorous character. Actually, the stuff with my mum and being a child of gone through, like, seeing parents divorce and stuff, was that actually made me realise what I do and don't want to do. Yeah, I, I couldn't do family or criminal or immigration. They're just... And the people who do those, huge kudos to those people because they don't... They're not also until you get to top levels, the best paying of illegal roles, but they involve so much work. And my hat's off to all those people that do because it's an incredibly tough, tough job, but one that's needed to be done. And barristers are on strike right now because of the whole change in changes to the legal aid where you know, they're probably questioning why they even studied and went through all of that process and then basically they could just go and work in McDonald's, probably earn more. But their jobs are needs so, so needed to uphold the rule of law that we we profess to have in this country and stop the erosion of it. But that wasn't for me. <laughs> I decided yeah. I'm going to try and work in companies and and protect people's assets and help them grow and do other things. And I find it interesting as well. But the family stuff, you know, I, I have a lot of kudos for those people and, you know, some good friends have gone into that route and super tough, both professionally, but also for them personally, because they take on a lot of emotional baggage and it comes with it. They're real humans. Like, you know, I, I realized like I'm going to need to deal with other people's money. Like, let's do corporate and commercial. Worst comes to worst. If I mess up, it's just money. And generally, it's going to be for an organization or company, not an individual. So you knowing the journey that you wanted to take or direction you wanted to take with law has seen you kind of work in, was it the UK, China, Hong Kong, US, other parts of the world. What was it like, like living, working, traveling across Europe and Asia for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Like... When I started, I didn't, that was never in the cards. I got the bug of traveling in between, taking a gap year, between finishing university and starting a bar course. didn't think it was an option. It just turns out I was fortunate that I put my hand up for it or I went out to these places and, and found opportunities there. When I was in my first stints in China and then Hong Kong, I was working in private practice. It's a good life, man. Like living the expat life, you're getting paid well. But it became monotonous in a sense. It was eat, drink, play, eat, drink, work, play, eat, drink, work, play, eat, drink, work, play. It was just, and it got to the point of work, 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 work. In private practice, is grueling anywhere. In Asia, it's just relentless. So then, yeah. I can't imagine my health was any good at that point. I don't remember being particularly sick, but every time I went for a physical, 
with the Chinese government, every time you make doing your visas, you have to do a medical. They'll always say, Kevin, you've got a fatty liver. Come back. We can't approve you with your visa. So I'd have to do a couple of weeks of detox and then go back. It was a good life. It was very, very work-centered. Coming back to the UK then and going in-house, everybody or a lot of people think, oh, you're going from private practice in-house. It's an easier life. It wasn't. It just actually meant I was traveling a lot more back to places like Asia, across Europe, and then Russia and Asia. And actually going back even, still in private practice, moving from Asia to Russia, that was really different. I remember when I got there, nobody spoke to me for the first two weeks because uh, they thought I was a spy or something. It's like, why is this guy? Because like, they didn't understand. I had no ties to Russia. I'd moved from Hong Kong. I'm UK qualified lawyer. I was in the US law firm. It's like, why is he here? So nobody talked to me. And it was a very, although it was a US law firm, like it was quite local in some senses. You know, you had a canteen, like lunches prepared for you, free course meals. But basically it was to keep you in the office. So I started smoking when I was out there yeah. so that I had someone to talk to. Like I could walk out to the balcony and then you got to know these people and they're amazing. And they're like, we were one, we just didn't get why you were here. And it's like, because I wanted to do oil and gas work and energy and infrastructure specifically. Turns out actually I didn't get any of that work really, or not much of it, not as much as I wanted in my time in Russia. But I made some good friends out there, learned a lot, but then the financial crisis hit. And I remember the day they told me, well, there's a publication called Above the Law. And they'd put something out that my law firm were cutting 10% of its staff globally, fee earners. So, but in my head, it was like, oh, we've already made some reductions in this office, so that might not apply. So I continued searching for 20, this was in 2009, I continued searching for 2010 World Cup tickets, and I was literally about to put credit card details in when I got a call from like this, uh, the senior partner, Mr. Rosenberg, he was a really, really nice man. Like we used to have a lot of chats because I actually qualified, so I qualified as a barrister in the UK. So he loved like learning about the English legal system, but also what it's like being a barrister and the court system here. So we used to have chats. So I was like, oh, maybe he's one of those chats again. So I walked into his office, saw the other partner there. And thought, yeah, this is not one of those chats. So in my head, it was all about calculation at that point. I was like, I know where this is going. Let's see what they say. So anyway, it ended up being a bit of a negotiation because they said, well, we're offering you this. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm under a Russian law contract. So under Russian law, that's a little bit short. So this is what I want. And they said, well, we have to take it back up. So go back to your office. So sat in my office, just waiting for them to make a decision. But knowing that... I could just sit around here for five months and it won't be very good. <laughs> so they ended up coming back. We agreed a number and what I was going to get. And, and then basically they made me sign some forms. I had a week to leave the country and did. And then got back to the UK. And it was obviously the global financial crisis. So at the time, like I was a corporate M&A lawyer. Nobody was doing M&A work. It was with my ex-wife. We actually weren't married at that point we're just in well uh, we're still engaged and so i was like ah you know what well, maybe i'll go and get a job but there's no no corporate work here so yeah. <laughs> i'm going to enfield staying at my mom and dad's so going to enfield and uh i go to like the different 
temp agencies and said, look, I'm looking for some temp work, anything. I don't really care. I'm only looking for like beer money, essentially. Like I'm not fast. I'm only looking for temp work. And they're like, you're overqualified. It's like, yeah, but I mean, it's temp work. It, like I'm not planning on staying there for the rest of my life. You want me doing some admin? I have to do that. So I'm stocked in the shelves. I don't really care. I couldn't get a job. Actually, one person said, uh, I walked in. <laughs> I think I have quite a strong, at least Enfield, North London accent. And she's like, where are you from? Because your CV doesn't say anything from London. I was like, I'm, I'm from Enfield. <laughs> she's like, can you prove it? I was like, what do you mean prove it? <laughs> uh, uh, so that was upsetting. So anyway, I didn't get a job. I couldn't get, I couldn't get temp work. I literally couldn't get temp work. And I was like, this is odd, but okay, fair enough. What should I do? And so then I was, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I was like, oh, you know what? I could go back to Asia and go and learn Chinese. I've seen this photography course in Thailand. I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I bought a nice camera. It'd be nice to actually be able to have the time now to go and use it and take some pictures and I can still keep looking for jobs. So I could do that in Thailand. And then um, I was still messing about. Like, and I was like, ah, you know, I like browsing eBay sometimes, seeing what's for sale. And I saw this um, camper van come up. It was like a beat up old transit long long wheelbase van that's been converted and I was like yeah you know what I'm gonna just bid on it and then I won it it was like 400 quid or something <laughs> so I remember just going picking it up and then bringing it back I was like I'm just popping out and then came back with this thing so which my parents and my ex-wife were like what the, what the hell what is this <laughs> and I was like oh I don't know I thought we could just drive around Europe so I did that like did it up a bit uh, cleaned it up my mum made some curtains for it bought some camping gear as well, and then just started driving around Europe, like went France, um, Italy, Spain. Did that for like six weeks. I wasn't sure how long we were going to go. It wasn't really real plan or clear plan. And then ended up cutting it short. So I needed to go to Thailand for a potential job. So flew out there. Didn't get the job in the end. Uh, I didn't have any ties to Thailand and I uh, was too expensive, they said. But um, it was a good experience and then made the decision. It was like the summer of 2009. And I was like, ah, do you know what? Might as well go and learn Chinese. Like I spent all that time in Asia, didn't actually learn the language. And my ex-wife was Taiwanese. It's like, it's going to be a useful skill. Let's go out there. So I enrolled at Jiaotong University. And so went back out there and spent like five months there. Uh, then my ex-wife got pregnant, so it was like, yeah, beginning of 2010, need to, she's she's pregnant, I need, I do need to get a job. I looked at all sorts, actually. I was like, eh, you know what, I've always wanted to be a pilot, maybe I'll do that. And so I started applying for the Cathay Pacific, and I looked at the salary, and it was like, you know what, it's probably not right for me at this stage in life with a baby coming, uh, to, to also try and go and train to be a pilot for a commercial airline. So uh, I gave that one up, and... Um, Ended up moving back and then got this job, at, which is like my main gig. And I'm still here 12 years later. Although that's also led me around the world. Started off in Oxford and then going out to Asia and was based in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And then and got to move out to the US as well in 2017 and was there till, till during the pandemic, we made the decision to come home. At the time, it was like my wife got pregnant with my second child and we were like should we should we uh set up roots here or, or move back and it was like we've got to move back and to be fair at the time my wife when we first went there my wife was like if i can get political now we've got trump in uh i don't like it and if he's going to get back in 
then we have to leave. And at the time when we made that decision, it looked like he might get back in. So we said, this isn't for us. We, we're, we're guests here. And you also have the opportunity to leave when we want to. Let's take that opportunity. And there was a whole host of other reasons. I'd experienced some racism uh, there. The whole gun thing, like, you know, my son was going to be four and he would have started pre, pre-K and he would have been learning about how to escape uh, what they call it. I can't remember what they call it now. Active shooter training. And I was like, what sort of world do we have? To uh, pre-K. Yeah, pre-K. They do it. So I was like, I don't want that. You know, and the question's like, when we put him in nursery, you ask the question, does people compare him bringing guns here? It's like, what what world do we should... Well, I don't want to be in that world where I have to ask that or think about that question. And with another one coming on, We've got no family support there anyway, limited number of friends and no, definitely no family. And like my job at the time involved a lot of travel and like it was COVID at the time, but you know, in 2020, we all thought the world's going to just fall back into place. And so it was like, with two kids, all of this environment, do we want to be here? And the answer was no, we don't. So we made the decision to move back and we ended up moving in with my in-laws it ended up being and thankfully they were they gracious us to keep us for three months where, while we're buying the house that i'm in now which we saw on the internet with <laughs> we saw on the internet put an offer in and then after coming back saw it once before the purchase when we managed to get out of quarantine and before another the national lockdown so yeah it was a uh, it was, it, but it it was the right decision to make. And in that period of time, my parents have also moved back. So they were they had been living in Spain, so they moved back, and they're in they're back in Enfield, but it's only an hour and a bit away. My in laws are thirty minutes down the road. I feel a sense of belonging and rootedness now. Yeah, for sure. But also, it's really, really helped me set. I, I feel alive and purposeful. Like I've I, I've realized I've been back here reconnecting uh, which has led to like so many opportunities all the stuff I'm doing now springs from really coming back here and the sense of freedom that I feel here that I didn't feel in the US which is funny because you know that's apparently the land of the free it's the land of the free for some not all so now walking a park we have many of the similar issues but but I feel here, at least I've got a voice and I can make a change. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yes. Wow. So it sounds like you've, you've been on a journey of exploring different areas and avenues and opportunities for yourself, as well as obviously what works best for, for the family. And now you're in that space where, and it feels so good to hear someone say that, you know, um, I feel, feel alive. I feel purposeful. I think it was very easy for a lot of us day, day in, day out kind of to just exist. But to actually hear someone like, no, I feel alive, I feel purposeful, I feel driven. That sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, it took a long while. Like this journey started in the US looking at like, you know, I was having some issues. So I went through counseling. And when I was in Asia, I haven't talked about this, but my, myself and my ex-wife, we separated. My, my current wife was... I have, we have two boys now, but you know, I remember coming home one day and like, my ex-wife had gone from the house and we were in a process of like moving into separate places. I came home, everything had gone, including the cleaner. It's my, my joke, so I make light of it, but my daughter was taken. I didn't know where she was. Ended up finding out they were in Taiwan. 
I was walking streets in the heat, phoning the family number that I had until I heard a phone call. So I knew they got to know that I was there and me looking for my daughter. And then we went through the whole process, court process. It went right up to the Supreme Court. I ended up losing um, and... I've made peace with that now. My daughter's settled. She's happy and she's, she's built a life there. We don't have the communication I want in terms of time, but at least I do get to see her on a weekly basis. Yeah, there's no flexibility. And I, in pre-COVID, did have opportunities to go and spend some time with her in various times, very fixed and regimented, but and invariably interrupted because they say, well, you know, yeah, we know it's your time, but she's got these classes, so you have to take her. So, you know, I, I always say to myself, well, look, you shoot, if you were, that's what parenting is, like you, you ferry them about, you know, <laughs> that's what she wants to do. That's what, like, let's just be the, be the parent. So it's, it's tough work, but I've got to make it happen because she's my daughter. I've got, I'm, I need her to know that I'm there for her whenever, but it is hard, particularly last few years, you know, come, come, sort of February, if I don't get to see her by then, it would be three years, you know. She turned 12 this summer, so that's a quarter of a life. I wouldn't have seen her physically being able to hold my little girl. That eats away at me, but it is what it is, and I've just got to make the best of it, but also make sure my two boys know that they've got a big sister out there, and one day, like, they'll get the opportunity to to meet with her too. But yeah, so that led to me needing a a lot of help. I didn't know it. Yeah, it's just not smart. No. Nah. It's a lot to handle. I thought I was handling it, is the truth. But I wasn't. I was a I was a dark version of the person I wanted to be and the person I was. I sometimes describe myself as a, you know, I sort of threw myself into work and being that person trying to climb a pole. I found through counselling and, and help and to, being able to open up and talk to, even talk to my wife about how I feel not good at, doing that i'm a bottler i like bottling <laughs> maybe that's that i've learned that's not a good thing but through that i started learning about purpose and you know i don't see my purpose like i'm spiritual but not necessarily religious mm. and then i sort of came to learn about ikigai and buying into that whole sort of japanese like understanding your purpose and how you serve people and what you're here to do including one trip like i didn't end up getting to see my daughter so my wife's like just go and like take some time go to like japan because that's where you want to go I'm just go and have like a few days i said well no because like you're going to be here with two kids like we're still in the u.s she's like yeah my parents are here though and i was like no no it's not fair though so i took but i took one day and i'd been reading about like this island okinawa which has like the highest population of people over 100 years old i can't remember the Centurions or centennials, I can't remember what they're called now, the term for it. But I read about it, so I was like, do you know what? We're going to go and see these people and see if I can speak. So basically flew in and had 24 hours there. I did a three-hour bus journey, got up super early, Got did a three-hour bus journey, got to this village, and I was like, ah, uh, now I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't speak Japanese and don't know what to do. But this guy come up to me. And he was like, what do you, 
what, what are you doing here? Do you need, can I help you? And I was like, yeah, uh, firstly, I'm just looking to go and get some coffee because I've been traveling for three hours and it's like nine o'clock in the morning. I need coffee. So he took me to like basically the one shop in the village, which was like right by the town center in, in like the village center. And I got the coffee and then we started chatting. So I told him what I was doing there. And he's like, oh, okay, well, come with me. So then he took me, <laughs> took me around to his family, his friend's house, then his daughter's house, and another friend's house. At his daughter's house, he, he got me to help him fix the toilet there. And so we ended up spending like a good few hours talking and sort of learning about his life. And I asked him like questions. Didn't get to meet, I didn't actually get to meet anybody that was over 100, but I did get to meet people in their late 80s and 90s. And asked them why, like, how come you guys are all friends and stuff? And he said, because we have a sense of belonging here. We might have left, but we come back, we're tethered and we serve each other. Like he said, that's what we've just done. Like, I introduced you to this friend. I helped him. You know, you came and helped me at my daughter's house. Like that was, we're helping other people. He said, that that's what it's all about. So that stuck with me a lot. It was really powerful. And I started like, so what's my purpose? Like, what am I here to do? And I think I've worked that out. And my purpose is to use my skills to help others make the world a better place. And someone asked me, a coach asked me once, why aren't you making a, the world a better place? Like, why, is, why are you helping others to do that? And I said, because uh, we can project more. If I can help more people, I said, I am helping the world get better by helping others do, do it. If I can help multiple people do it, then that's, that's more than if I was just trying to do my own little bit. So, and sometimes people just need to believe in their own skills and I think I can help them do that. And so, yeah, that's, that's centered up the sort of motto I live by and uh, remind myself daily when I journal, I write at the bottom of my journal, last thing I write is live your life with your, the purpose at the forefront of your mind. And that I'll make sure that's reminded. I'm, I'm, I remind myself of that every day so that the actions I take are around living out that purpose and it's not just something that is some word that I came up with but it's actually like a deeper meaning for me we live in um purposefully and here you go the reason for you reason for being is it's a lifelong journey which a lot of people spend so much time trying to figure out and it's great to be able to have an answer in a sense for you now at an age where you'd be very intentional and doing something with it. And I'm curious, was that what sparked your, your idea around Diversity X? In fact, first of all, let the people know what Diversity X is. And then was that what sparked your, your idea around Diversity X and that creation? Yeah, so... Yeah, Diversity X first and foremost is a community for underestimated founders and entrepreneurs. I use that term underestimated rather than underrepresented, which is commonly used. Everybody commonly refer to women founders, people of color founders, LGBT plus, disabled, all the different categories. They say they're underrepresented. I, 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 that's, not, that's not the case in my experience. They're well represented. They're underestimated. They're underrepresented in the equitable allocation of capital. So I use the term underestimated because that's in relation to the opportunities to access capital. They're underestimated in their abilities to deliver the, the returns or just return that capital. They're overlooked. 
to a massive extent. I was on a call earlier and, you know, some of the, the female, the women founders there were talking about stuff that they've had happen. And they said, like, you know, that you've got to play the game. It's not a fucking game. Like, people just, it's just shocking. Investors putting hands on women, expecting something. That's not right. I, I, I implore them to call them out, but yeah, they don't. It's dangerous. Because. But then the flip side of that is that yeah, keeps on happening. That's it. Like, it's just more, like, I, I use the thing, like, Weinsteins. These are all Weinsteins. Can't have it. Like, like. Mm-hmm. What if my daughter? What if one of these people, my daughter? <laughs> I can't do it. Like so, we are a community for underestimated founders. It's a safe space. It's a place to share these types of stories I've just mentioned. It's a place to learn from each other, to collaborate, to help each other. Uh, I'm truly a believer in, and all knowledge should be open source, free, and accessible to all, so that we can lift all up. But we're also working on building, like I said, like part of our support is creating the opportunities to access capital. So we're working. I have a partner now in, in Marcus and a few others helping us, like Laria as well, who focuses on founder education. But we're trying to build a venture capital fund to, to ourselves, support some of the founders within the community. But also we're trying to build a founder education program, which will provide both life skills as well as the business skills that founders need but it's tailored to the underestimated founder because, you know, there's lots of people. It's, it happens with across many things, but, you know, look at the accelerators. Look at our lovely, diverse cohort. And they finish those programs, but where's the investment in them? Where's the capital still? Like, numbers don't are not changing. So it's all for show, and I'm sort of done with it. I'm just fed up of seeing these statistics or seeing this data, seeing people saying, well, we're going to do something about it. But years and years and years later, the problem still exists. So that's where diversity comes from. It's come to my drive to, well, actually it came from me realizing a couple of other things. It's like, you know, I looked at what do I want to do? I've got this, I've got this day job, but I need to also live my purpose. And I can't fully do that in my day job. And I've made peace with that, but also that, making peace with that and understanding that you don't have to it'd be great if you could do everything in your day job but if you can't you can still do it you just got to find ways to do it so through diversity x i've made that decision too but i help underestimated founders get that access to capital build sustainable businesses that for me are going to be around in six years time 15 years time or even 13 years time and, and 18 years time. And that's important because I have three mixed race children. And I said like two young boys, five and one, my daughter's 12 and all three, it'll be hard for, because we know that it's, it's hard anyway. But for my daughter, it's going to be even harder because society has said, Hey, Alden, not only you're a mixed race, but you're female, get to the back of the line. Actually, it's not quite the back of the line, but get to the back and work your way up. I can't have that. Like, all right, for me, that's fine, but I can't have it for my daughter and I can't have it for my two boys either. So I need businesses to be there that are sustainable, but also are built around embracing the power of diversity and inclusion and understanding that, that it is a real benefit. It's not just a buzzword. It's not just doing the right thing. Like it helps society. And so that's what sort of in some senses 
like is driving me forward. Wow. You know, when you hear all these stories coming through the community and you have this sense of frustration coming up that you want to do things, you want to change things, but yet you see, you don't see change happening either at a fast pace that you would like, always being so along and this issue has been there. How do you still have hope that things can change? Because I believe in myself and the people that are in that community to deliver that change. Because we have to be intentional. I use this at work. I use this word a lot, being intentional. Because I think, like, right, give me an example, talk about ethics compliance at work. I said, you can tell, you can be a leader that talks about it. That's one thing. But nobody's going to buy it. Nobody's going to follow you. Nobody's going to believe you until you walk the talk. And that takes intention because you have to want to do it. And, and that's what I have. I have intention in changing this. And I think I've re- come to realize that there are a lot of other people who also have this intention. So I'm trying to connect with those people so that we can make this change because I don't have a lot of time, man. Like six years, my daughter could enter this workforce. It needs to be better for her. It needs to be better. But like, I'm not naive. I know this is generational work. But we've got to get away from rhetoric and get into mm. that, the age of action. Because I'm done with right, reading it. It's just gaslighting. Like, how am I supposed to feel? How are those people supposed to feel? Yeah, here's a report. Another one. Another report. Tells us what we already know. We know it. I'm just... Good intentions. Like, good intelligence is great when you actually do something about it. And ultimately, there hasn't been mm-hmm. enough done. Lots of talk, lots of time spending. Oh, well, how shall we tackle the issues? Well, get off your ass and do something. Start. It deeply frustrates me, but also it saddens me when you hear these stories. But I think it's the stories that give me the drive that we can, we can do things differently. I think there's also, there's also something that I'm, I'm in the community and it's something that I notice. I'm coming up with experience as much as I really should do. But when I tap in, there's something about being having, having a space where you can be real, you can share, and also be seen. I think trying to be seen outside of a community in a space, safe space like that is hard to do because someone's always going to have something to, to say. Someone's always going to gaslight you if you make a comment about something. But in this space, you get, and then I say that, in a sense, it's validation. It's like, no, this is this experience that I had. And you have people being like, no, what you experienced wasn't right. Or you have people supporting you, sharing you on, trying to connect with other people. You have that sense of com- real community of we're going to try and do this and do this together whether it's my business or your business, we're going to spur and push each other forward. And that I think is, is what's different a lot of times, because especially when you're a founder and entrepreneur, it's very lonely. So not only you're dealing with the rubbish out there, you're then dealing with the fact that I'm still, I'm, I'm by myself. So having that space is really, really key. Yeah. I, one of the things I say is there are no competitors in this community as any collaborators. You can have very similar businesses, but look for ways. Antitrust rules in place, of course, but, you know, like, look for opportunities to collaborate. Most of the pies that 
you're cool looking because <laughs> I look at their decks right for many of them and the pie is massive so I might think to myself you could both exist in this and you do things slightly differently and what I love about talking with founders is is like the vision and like the way they see the world and the way they see problems and the way they want to solve those problems and, there, and there's multiple ways to solve the same problem right you don't all have to have exactly the same same solution and do you know what? When the problem's really big, why not come at it at different angles? So I, I genuinely believe the community's there to create those opportunities. And, and one of the, like, the sect, like, we have a lot of what I'd call fashion, sustainable fashion companies in there. They're doing it in different ways, right? But I love the way they connect and support each other. Same problem, but a slightly different take on it. And I, I love watching those guys connect. And actually, it's like the offline conversations I have, I didn't realize actually how much goes on outside of the community itself, but f- from the basis of the community. Talking to like Marcus and he, he said he went to the, like the sifted summit this week. I said to Mark, who'd you see? Like, was it good? He's like, yeah, great networking. I met so many of the DX people there. And I was like, Do you know what? That's amazing that you guys are all connecting not on a platform, but in real life, like you're taking the opportunity to meet up and support each other. It fills me with warmth uh, and it, it does feel like we're doing good for, for people. Even we don't, we can't always help them in terms of the opportunities to access capital, but we're helping them in other ways. And, and I think it's important. And I did say like, when we started, like this has to be a real community. And that's why I say active community. Our mission is to have the world's biggest active community of underestimated founders. Because I believe together, through being able to share our stories, share learning, share support, we can actually all all lift each other up and and all thrive. Whether it's for us individually or for for the people in our communities or or for society as a whole, I think there's a there's a genuine opportunity here to to do good. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. What are some of the challenges you've, you've had in the journey of building a community of underestimated founders, because I know trying to bring people together or even have some of those values, i.e. we're not competing with each other, everything else like that, is not the easiest thing to do because you're dealing with human beings and we're all complex individuals. So what's some of those challenges that you've had creating and, and curating this, this space? It was for... Is getting people engaged, like providing is building a community is about when I felt like when I started, like people were like, Oh, you know, it's really tough work. You have to, you have to have a load of content and stuff. I was like, I don't have time to create content. I can like, but what it, so what I, I took the approach of let's be human and let's just talk and like create a you note. Know, so I'd share my stories and it started encouraging people. And then we started doing this thing on a Friday, like a check-in. But it was like, let's celebrate our, I call it the wins, losses and obstacles not overcome. And everything is a celebration because you learn a lot from each of those things. So we all started doing it. It started getting real 
becoming really popular. But some of the challenges has been bringing new people in. And as it's, it grew a lot quicker than I could manage. So then it was like, oh, I've got to find a partner or, or people to help. And then it, that adds pressure, right? Because it's like, oh, this is unpaid. Who, who's going to want to do this? So creating opportunities and finding capital is really tough. And, and now, now as I work to build a fund, I can tell you that's, that's really hard. Like there's a lot of people doing this stuff. There's a lot of good people trying to, trying to tackle these issues in different ways, but it is really hard. Like, you know, I could tell you some of the conversations I've had. Now, Kevin, you know, who's your competitor out there? And I, I respond to like that. There are other people doing similar things. I don't treat any of those competitors. In fact, I, I treat those as collaborators because you know what? Like, no matter how much money you've got, you haven't got enough for, for the opportunity here. But those founders need that support. So why can't we both support them and win? Or Kevin, are you really just focused on diversity? Like you're focused on the, on the found, just like the characteristics of the founders. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> what makes you think that? I'm just giving, creating the opportunities which they're not getting. But they still have to deliver on all of the other things, right? The community is one side, but the fund is a different, like I have a fiduciary duty and I take that seriously. So I, I just because they're diverse founders don't mean they're any less worth than the, tr- the traditional founders that you're thinking about and the straight white men who can pretty much on the back of a fag packet, raise hundreds of millions in some circumstances. We need to create the opportunity. We need to create, create a DA data that shows that you can be a female founder. You can be a person of color founder and you can be deeply successful. And the reason you're not thinking that now is because that you're, you're not allowing data to even be created in the first place. So we'll do that, but it's tough. I hate the business case for diversity. You're in a red yes or no. <laughs> no, I hate it. I hate it. But I find myself regularly having to go back to it because that's the language some people just want to talk in. That's sad. In some sense, it's an indictment of society, right? Like, this is what we've got down to. What's in it for me? Okay. Oh, this is what's in it for you. And that's what you need, which is a shame because to truly be innovative, to truly take the world forward, do have to collaborate, do have to think about the we and not the I. And I don't know when we'll get to that day, but I hope that the work we're doing with Diversity X will help help accelerate that and actually make some real positive change. It's quite interesting to hear you actually talk about when you start a community, people were like, oh, this is what you do in, in content, blah, 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 blah. And I remember way back when I thought about creating a community, I had the same advice and it put me off because I'm like, I don't have time for that. I want something that was there that sustained itself and could run without me because it was more around the community and, and I'm falling back. And listen to you, it's been like, well, I just leaned into doing what I do. Some of the small things leaving, sharing about myself and building up from there. And it just goes to show how there are so many approaches to the same issue. Yeah. And a lot of times we hear the same advice time and time again, which stops us from doing something. But there are times when we can like, you know what? That might be the quote unquote standard, but I don't have to follow the standard. I can just do my own thing. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, I'll learn from it and do something else. But that willingness to just actually lean into it is is super important. And I love that you birthed this community. 
And it is sustaining itself. People like contributing, and people like do what they need to do. Yeah, and I get it's funny when we were at London Tech Week. I was walking with Elias, like we were standing, we were on our feet for hours. Like first day, barely didn't get any lunch, and the second day, I was like, right, Lara, let me take you out for lunch." And just went to like just walk down the street just to get away from the constantness of it all. And we got down, and someone come in, it's like, "Hey, you're Diversity X, aren't you?" And I was like, "Do I know you?" Do we know each other? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot about it. So I was like, that was really like an important moment for me. It's like, oh, do you know what? We must be, we must be doing something right. Like something's happening here because people are talking about it. It's not just the stuff like other people are talking about it. And that's what, that's what's sustaining it. And that's what's helping it grow. And we were on WhatsApp and it was, it was so noisy that I actually had people saying like, I've got to leave because it's just too much which is why we end up moving to a different platform to help, I guess, mute it, allow that mutability. But but in itself, like that's a testament that is so busy. It's such a busy group and that everybody's got questions and everybody's helping each other. Like people wanted to, you know, like be considered for award. They'd post it and the entire community is like getting out, like, and all you're getting is those pings, like done, 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 I've nominated you, done, done, done. And you know what? Like where else can you get that? It doesn't happen that often. I'm in a load of other communities and I, I do feel proud of what we've achieved at Diversity H. You know, all these people come in and contributing so much, giving so much of themselves. You know, even Marcus, like he became a partner on the basis of, I asked him, like, what do you want to do? Like, you've got this startup, you're interested in venturing, you're, you're learning about it and you're contributing so much to this community. And he said to me, Kevin, I get out of bed. And the first thing I'm doing is looking at what's happening with Diversity X. Who can I help? What can we do? And it's like, you're younger than me. You are the next generation. So let's be partners. Let's, let's help each other build this. And originally, when I was looking for a partner, I was being quite specific. Oh, I really need a female partner. You're not technically allowed to say that, but that's essentially what I was, I was looking for, a female partner to make sure be that check and balance of me. I couldn't find the right person. Like brought in Alaria. And she's great for the education side. But for as we build in a fund, and I was like, oh, you know what? I, I do need that. But I've got a brilliant advisor in Joy Eater. And I couldn't find the right person either. Like we were going to be, what's going to happen is going to be too far off or they would just weren't the right fit. We probably wouldn't be able to work with each other in working styles. So that's the thing. But with Marcus, ideologically, we're on point. And working styles, we're finding that out. But we're making it work because the underlying thing is not about us. It's not about the fund. It's about delivering what we said we're going to deliver for underestimated founders. And that's what drives us. I think that's the difference between us and some other communities, but also some other funds is we're deeply focused. We don't lose sight of where, what we're trying to do. And we, we also are, we know that this is not like a one fund deal. This is like, repeatedly over and over and over and over. We're going to keep doing this until we get the changes that we want to see. And I might be dead and gone by that time. And that's fine because if this, if the organization, if the community is still around, still going strong, still making change, then that's something positive that that'll be left behind. Live your quotes. That's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to. Go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk, subscribe to Live Your Quotes. 
It's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote, how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you. As well as bits and pieces of maybe books I'm reading and maybe some other content I'm tapping into and some bits and pieces around the podcast. It's a nice, short, succinct newsletter, which I know you're going to enjoy. But to enjoy it, you need to subscribe to it. So again, if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you'll be able to get access to leave your quote newsletter. Now let's get back into the episode. Finding your purpose, finding the reason to be, executing purpose, and then being able to make a difference to so many different people. And there's so much more to come. Like you said, we have the community, the fund is being worked on, which is going to be impactful for sure. And you're doing all of this. And like you said, family is something that's super, super important to you. I mean, we heard you share about your daughter and even just moving. So again, you're still holding down the family and you're creating every single thing that you feel is inside of you to kind of birth out before you leave the earth. And for me, that's why I was like, we need to talk. Like, if we really need to hear more about who you are, your journey, your purpose, what drives you and just what you're putting out in the world, because it is, I think some, it's easy to be like, this is impossible. This feels impossible. This dream feels impossible. Then you hear people like you say like, yeah, it's hard, but it doesn't stop you. It doesn't stop you from still implementing and executing. And what you get is people coming around alongside of you to, to help you make it a reality, which is good. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, I'm thankful for all of these people. But you know, going back to family, one person that should be thanked more than more than everybody is my wife. She mm. makes it possible. I, I, I sometimes joke. I, I don't joke actually. I'm serious about this. Like the, you know, we talk about investors like from a fund side and call them like limited LPs. It was like a true fund structure. She's my first LP. Like it might not be cash in, but it is everything else that enables it to happen. So without her, without her, none of it could happen. Without her being supportive, you know what? I'd have to stop working and do my parental duties, which she picks up some of those, that tack, that stuff around the house. Like me going to do London Tech Week, was away for a couple of nights. She has to pick up the slack. So she's an amazing woman and definitely like, the communities. I invited her to join it. Actually, she said no because she doesn't want to take away from it. But of what I'm doing, she keeps me on that equal footing, and she gives me the energy to go forward. Like you know, I've changed a lot because of who she is and what she has given me. She made, she's made me a better person. Partners are, like I said, those people behind the scenes, whether you're a man or a woman. Like partners we have a good, solid partner. Yeah beside you it's amazing it makes things much more easier and more smoother because they pick up the slack in ways that no one hears about very much like you said underestimated <laughs> deeply <laughs> underestimated in so many different ways and well, definitely cool signing that for sure because my last question to you is how do you define leadership I think there's different terminologies for this, but ultimately there's similar 
similar philosophies. Like, so I look at human leadership as just showing up, being yourself. You have to lead with being yourself. That means being open, vulnerable, caring. And it's always never about you. I think the title leader maybe has invoked way too much negative stuff as well. But I think it's all about serving everybody else. You set a vision, you have a vision, and you portray that vision to people. You should also get buy-in on that vision. And you set, I guess, the North Star. But then you help people who buy into that, get to that. You know, when I think about companies, I see people leaving on bad terms. I never understand that. Like, I think any person who, who works in any organization, they choose to leave. Just turn around and say, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come to this place and to give up your, you know, you could have gone anywhere. You chose this place too. Like we gave you an opportunity, but you also chose. So thank you. And it should be like that. Like that's, in my view, good leadership. Showing up, leading by example, not doing the do as I say, not as I do type thing, like literally being intentional. So I think you know, some people call it servant leadership. I call it human leadership, but whatever, whatever you call it, it's about serving others, being there for them and caring, literally caring about people, treating people as equal and individual, unique people to which they exactly are. Where can people find out more about you, about Diversity X, and what's coming up in the future? So find out me and Diversity X. You can contact me at Kevin Withane on LinkedIn. Just search my name. I think my Twitter handle is Kevin Withane as well. I'm rubbish at tweets. Um, my wife told me I should stay off social media. It's funny because I'm annoying at <laughs> the amount of typos there. <laughs> like, I was like, it's my day job is, is being a lawyer, so can't get away with it there. <laughs> Elon's going to fix that one. <laughs> yeah. From the community point of view, if you're an underestimated founder, there's nothing like, please join. Like it, it's everything is for you. We do want to create, keep creating that safe space and hearing the stories and the learnings and everybody can add value. We also have a newsletter. You can find it on Substack, The Underestimated. I'll tell you how I see it. And so if you want to learn more, go there as well, because that's, that's also sharing the journey. But particularly sharing a journey, what I love doing and with that newsletter is sharing a journey of some of the founders we have in the community. And each each month we'll, we'll share like a few different founders' journey, what they're doing and what they're asking for. So take a read. And if any of those, also any of those founders are raising or doing something that you can, that sits well with you, please help them. Please, please help them. All that information is going to be available in the show notes and... I just appreciate this conversation and it's, it's truly inspiring and it's just giving me some giving me a lot of energy for the day ahead of me so thank you very much uh, seriously thank you for giving me a platform and opportunity <laughs> as you realize you made it a lot easier to talk about oneself <laughs> uh, even, no, I'll pay you know paying a counselor to, to talk to her. <laughs> she was probably she was getting the money in but not enough of the conversation <laughs> so I don't know what you did but thank you yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. This is the leadership. We'll see you next week.